I was waiting. <laughs> Thank you so much for being here today. I know you've been away. Some of you have been camping this week. Some of you have been visiting family. Um, I'm, I'm grateful that you're here. Um, you know, I, I was blessed last week. I, I shared in one of my devotions. I, I stood in the back last week and I get to see some, you know, I have a perspective up here, but I also have a perspective back there. And I was, I was just watching everybody worship last week, and it was so thrilling to my heart just to see you intercede with God and, and, and worship Him and praise Him the way He deserves. And, and thank you for blessing my heart. It's just a, a joy when I get to see you do that. Last week was a great day for our church. We, we probably had the highest attendance we've had since COVID. And so we had a great number of people here last week and a lot of visitors visiting. And, and that was even given the fact that a lot of our people were away on vacation seeing some of their family. So I want to thank everybody that worked hard to get our campus in uh, good shape last week. A lot of people were busy doing that. Um, also, for those of you who went yesterday for the Franklin Graham training, thank you for doing that. Uh, let me encourage you to continue to pray for your lost family, lost friends, lost neighbors. Um, the, the, the meeting that Franklin Graham is going to be having in a few weeks, that is for lost people. I'm just going to be blunt with you. Christian, if you go, take lost people with you. Don't go occupy a seat unless you've got lost people there with you. Uh, he's a great man to meet and a great man to hear preach. But he's doing that because he cares about the loss of the world. And he's trying his best to penetrate as much darkness as he can with truth. And, and so uh, I, I just encourage you to be praying for your lost neighbors, but also engage them and, and try to get them there to hear the truth of the gospel about Jesus Christ. I want you to do something before you leave today because I think today is the Hall family's last day. Am I right? Yeah. Jeremy, I, I thank God for you and your leadership and the way you've led your family while you've been here. The way you came in and engaged our church and became family. Uh, we, we send missionaries all over the world through the activity of the military. <laughs> so <laughs> go be busy for the Lord as he takes you all the way to Alaska. And so, yeah. Y'all give them a hug before they leave today. Pray with me for just a moment. Father, we had a great week with you last week as we came into this place and worship. Thank you for uh, putting this facility here where we can gather and worship you in, in truth and in spirit. Lord, we want your spirit to move among us today. Help us to celebrate you and to rejoice in the resurrection of our Lord because that is a that is a, a hope and a, and a truth and a reality that, that God changes everything. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you that you're not just some dead leader in a tomb. You're a risen Lord. King of kings and Lord of lords, there's no one like you. Never has been, never will be. Invade our heart today, please, with truth, with power with purpose. Help us to hear you. I, I pray, Lord, that they don't hear me. I, I pray they hear you as you speak through this servant. God, I want truth to reign today. 
I want you to be glorified. I want us to be moved and changed. I want us to be encouraged. We, we live in a world right now, Lord, that is just tough to live in. But Lord, when we go back and look at history 2,000 years ago, it was tough for those Christians as well. God, in many ways, we're a lot alike. And I know that if you could take care of them in that day, you can take care of us today. We celebrate that truth. I thank you for the salvation we have in Jesus Christ that is solid and sound and is everlasting. Bless us, Lord, to hear you today. In Jesus' name, amen. If you will allow me, I want to go back this morning and recap what we looked at last Sunday concerning the life, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Those facts are very, very important. There's some great information that we need to be reminded of from time to time. You know, we're told in Scripture that the last thing that Jesus said as he hung on that cross was this. It's finished. Father, into your hands... I commend my spirit. And it says that when he had said these words, he breathed his last breath and he died. He died. Jesus died for us. The Roman officer that was there in charge was so moved by what he saw and what he heard that it caused him to stop and to worship God. Can you imagine that? A Roman officer, a pagan man, worshiping God because of what he just witnessed? And he said, surely this man was innocent. A little late, but he saw the truth. The crowd that had gathered there to watch the execution of Jesus Christ, it says they were deeply sorrowful. I think it was more of a troubled spirit that they experienced they knew something really bad had happened, but they just couldn't figure it out. But they were moved. And then there was his friends. When Jesus hung on that cross, there weren't many there. John, the apostle, the beloved disciple, and a handful of women, maybe a few more. They were so shocked and confounded that they pulled back some distance from the cross. I'm sure that Mary was as close to her son as she could be as they nailed him and hung him on that cross. But as that continued to progress and as he began to wane in, in spirit and in life, they began to pull back. John writes, standing near the cross where, where Jesus' mother and his, his mother's sister and Mary, the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus saw his mother standing there beside the disciple that he loved, that would be John, he said to her, woman, he is now your son. And then he looked at the disciple and he said, she is now your mother. And from then on, that disciple took her into his house. I believe John probably took her and took care of her for the rest of her earthly days. Dr. Luke says that they stood at a distance and watched. Again, I think they were close as they could be, but the horror and the grief of what they were witnessing, they kept backing up, and they kept getting further and further away. They were so um, horrified by what they saw. They were shocked. They were overwhelmed with grief, 
unable to comprehend all that was happening to Jesus. This was not the way this story was supposed to end. They had a much different ending in mind. Because it didn't end the way they thought it should, they were devastated and distraught until Sunday morning, right? Sunday morning when the resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, it changed their lives forever. I hope it's changed yours. Changed mine. I suspect that Joseph of Arimathea was also there. Maybe even Nicodemus standing in the shadows, not wanting to be seen, but yet loving the Lord. When Joseph saw that Jesus was dead, he went to Pilate and he asked for permission to take Jesus' breathless body down from the cross so that he could give him a proper burial. Luke records that in Luke chapter 23, verse 53. He says, then Joseph took the body down from the cross and he wrapped it in a long linen cloth. And he laid it in a new tomb, a tomb never used that had been carved out of rock. Guys, listen, they didn't put Jesus in a hole they dug in the ground. Are you hearing me? They put him in a rock tomb, an above ground level tomb that had been carved out of solid rock. And there was only one door leading into that tomb. There were no windows. There was no sunroof. There were no vents. Just that one door leading in to the tomb. John writes, Nicodemus, the man who had come to Jesus at night also came, bringing about 75 pounds of embalming ointment made from myrrh and aloes. Together they wrapped Jesus' body. you got to think about that. How did Jesus' body get from the cross to the tomb? Somebody had to carry it, right? You ever tried to carry a dead body? It's not easy. It's not easy. On top of the fact that he is torn, his skin is torn, he's a bloody mess. So he's slipping and sliding and they're holding and they're getting him there. When they got him to the place they were going to bury him, it says together they wrapped Jesus' body in a long linen cloth with spices, as is the Jewish custom of burial. The place of crucifixion, which would have been Cal Calvary or Golgotha, it was near a garden, it says here, where there was a new tomb never used before. I've been to that location the, the, the place where Jesus was crucified is just around the corner from where that empty tomb is at. You can walk there in a matter of two minutes. It says, and so because it was a day of preparation before the Passover, and since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. And I'm sure once they got him secure, they did as much as they could do. Time was running out. They rolled the stone across the opening to make sure that nothing was able to get in and hinder or uh, 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 mutilate the body of Jesus. Dogs, you know, whatever might have gotten in there. So they put that stone across the front of the tomb. Luke says, and his body was take, as his body was taken down, the women from Galilee followed. They didn't participate in that. They followed and they saw the tomb where they placed his body. And then they went home and they prepared some spices and ointments to embalm him. But by the time that they were finished, it was the Sabbath. You see, it was nearing 6 o'clock in the evening. Jewish Sabbath began at 6 in the evening. And so it says, so they rested all that day as required by the law. 
Everything was done that could be done with the time that they had. But these ladies wanted to do even more. They wanted to make sure that the body was well taken care of. And that's what they went home to do. And then we move from chapter 23 into chapter 24 with verse 1 saying, But very early on Sunday morning, the women came to the tomb taking the spices that they had prepared. They found that the stone covering the entrance had been rolled aside. In other words, the tomb was wide open. This was a very large stone. I'm guessing that the stone that I saw there next to the empty tomb probably weighs a couple thousand pounds. Very heavy stone. The big question is, so who moved it? And why did they move it? Did Jesus open it up from the inside? Did he have the strength as a dead man to be able to move it? Did the apostles go there and move that stone away and steal the body as was reported? Was it the Roman guards that moved it? The Bible specifically tells us that it wasn't the women. They were going there. When they got there, they found it was already moved. So who moved it? Who moved that large rock? I shared in my devotion this week that rocks have always fascinated me. I have collected rocks since I was about eight years old. I believe, if I'm correct, the very first rocks that I took home in the the floorboard of the car, (laughs) leaving New Jersey, was rocks out of my grandfather's garden. I'm sure my dad, that Volkswagen was leaning because I had a whole pile between my legs. But, you know, since then, I've collected some rocks from all over the world. I have a stone on my desk from the edge of the Dead Sea. I have another one on the shelf from the Amazon River. I have, a, I have a cobblestone that came was once a part of the pavement around the Colosseum of Rome. They were fixing to haul it to the dump, and I asked for permission to get one. And the man said, take all you want. Well, you can't carry very many. <laughs> but I did get one. And, and I even have a piece of the Great Wall of China. I won't say who brought that to me, but somebody gifted me with that. Yeah, I don't want to be arrested by the Chinese. But of all the stones that I have, none of them have ever grabbed me and grabbed my interest like the stone that covered the tomb. I remember walking from Calvary through the garden and going to the empty tomb and And I was allowed to step into the tomb, but as I went in, I put my hand on that huge stone that covered it. And I thought, man, I'd like to take this home. But they wouldn't let me. And besides that, it was a little bit too big to get on the airplane. (laughs) A little bit too big for my collection. About a year ago, Joyce and I had an opportunity to go to Lancaster, PA, to watch a live production of the story of Jesus at the Sight and Sound Theater. And I'll tell you, if you've never been, you need to go. Um, It was an awesome production, as is all of their productions. But this one was about the life of Christ. It was very moving. It was very powerful. It was a very biblically correct production in its presentation until the very last scene of the resurrection of Christ. They had an archangel that ziplined from way in the back of the building up in the top where the lights were. He ziplined all the way down to the stage, which I thought was rather cool. I would have liked to have done that. 
But anyway, he zip lines down. He lands in front of the tomb. And when his feet hit the ground, there's thundering in the background. And there's rumbling like the Bible says. There was an earthquake. And, it, and then the, the, the tomb stone rolled to the side. Very dramatic. And once it was out of the way, Jesus stepped right out the front of the tomb. And I thought, no, he didn't. <laughs> That's not right. He didn't come out when the stone was rolled away. He was already out. He was gone. Mark 16, 3 says, On the way the women were discussing who would roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb. In other words, they're looking around and it's a handful of ladies and they're going, We can't do this. Who's going to do this for us? And suddenly there was a great uh, earthquake. Let me back up. I'm getting ahead of myself here. But when they arrived, they looked up and they saw that the stone, a very large one, was already rolled aside. So who rolled it away? The answer is found in Matthew 28, verse 1. Note this in your Bible so you'll know the answer to this question. Early on Sunday morning, as the, a new day was dawning, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went out to see the tomb. And suddenly there was a great earthquake because... An angel of the Lord came down from heaven and rolled the stone away. There's your answer. That explains who. Who rolled it away? An angel did. But why? Why did he roll it away? The Bible tells us that this angel supernaturally rolled the stone away, but not to let Jesus out. For if he could rise from the dead, the grave couldn't hold him in. And Jesus would need no help escaping from an earthly tomb. Jesus, by the power of God, was raised from the dead to live again. And his resurrected and transformed body then walked right through the solid rock wall on that tomb. Wow. That's like if we locked all the doors in here and Jesus wanted to get in in his transformed, resurrected state, he wouldn't have to come through the window or the doors. He could walk right through the wall. That's what he did. He left that tomb walking through the walls. We know from Scripture that the tomb was only opened later to help those who needed to see the empty tomb, to believe in the resurrection. It was opened up for them. They needed to see that Jesus wasn't there. They needed to see the empty tomb. When those ladies rushed back to where the apostles were hiding, they, they told Peter and John and the rest of them, and it said Peter ran to the tomb to look and stooping because when you go into that tomb, you have to bend down to get in. That opening's not that big. He stooped down and he looked in and he saw the empty linen wrappings. Now you imagine this. You've seen mummies, right? They wrap them from head to toe with a long cloth. And then when they run out, they, they add some more. And they, they keep saturating the cloth with this embalming ointment. And they, they keep wrapping and wrapping and wrapping and wrapping until you have a mummy. Jesus is laying in this tomb on this slab. The slab's only about 24 inches wide and maybe 6 foot long. They've got him laying there. And all of a sudden, he's laying there. And you can see that there's something in it. But all of a sudden, he vanishes. And that linen cloth just settles like you, you, you let a balloon go and all the air goes out of the balloon it goes back to its original shape 
that cloth is flat on that stone. That's what Peter saw. And it says he wondered what had happened. He couldn't figure it out. Well, even today, people are still trying to figure out what happened to Jesus. People need to know. People want to know. Everybody needs to know what happened to the most important person to ever live on this earth. The Lord's disciples certainly needed to know. So I I, want to show you this morning what Jesus did to help us understand. And, And I thank God for Dr. Luke because he writes more on this subject. He not only wrote the, the Gospel of Luke, one of the four Gospels, but he also wrote the book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles. And I want you to see how he began the book of Acts, beginning in verse 1, chapter 1. It says, in my first book, which was his Gospel book, I told you, Theophilus, about everything Jesus began to do and teach until the day that he ascended to heaven after giving his chosen apostles further instructions Through the Holy Spirit. He said during the 40 days after he suffered and died. He appeared to the apostles from time to time. And and proved to them in many ways that he was actually alive. And and he talked to them about the kingdom of God. As the book of Acts begins. I want you to think about the fact that the work of Christ at this point. Was both finished and unfinished. Finished and unfinished. His precious work of redemption was done. It was finished. It was completed. There was absolutely nothing that, you know, nothing besides what Jesus did on the cross that needed to be done for a lost person to be saved. Absolutely nothing. John 17, 4, Jesus said, I have brought you glory. He's he's talking to the Father. I brought you glory on earth by completing the work that you gave me to do. So the work of redemption is done. But the work of proclamation is not yet finished. Telling the world his story of grace and mercy is an ongoing task that we the church have and, and we Christians have. It is my responsibility to tell that story. But guess what, Christian? It's yours too. You have just as much responsibility to tell the story of Jesus as I do. It is our job. And it is a precious work, a precious uh, opportunity that we have that will not be completed until the Lord comes back to remove the church. Dr. Luke highlights the fact that with the death and the resurrection and the ascension having taken place, a very important transition then takes place. When Jesus was alive... He did the work of preaching and teaching primarily by himself. He alone was the one who trained and invested in these disciples. But with the ascension close at hand, it was was time for Jesus to pass on that responsibility to the apostles. Thus the burden of proclaiming the message of repentance and the good news about forgiveness to a lost world would then lie or rest squarely on their shoulders. Jesus passed it on to them. And they were to pass it on to others. And those others were to pass it then to even more people. As Paul wrote to Timothy, You have heard me teach many things that have been confirmed by many reliable witnesses. Teach these great truths to trustworthy people who are able to pass them on to others. We need people to do that. Well, guess what? Not a single one of these disciples 
were really ready for this daunting task. Can you imagine all of a sudden that being your responsibility? There was still so much they didn't understand. Their faith was still so weak and frail. MacArthur says, nor had they acquitted themselves well during the traumatic events surrounding Christ's arrest and crucifixion. They had not only failed in public witness, but also in private loyalty and in personal faith. Oh, my friends, they failed in the same things that we struggle with, right? Being a witness, being loyal, being faithful. But I want you to know that there's hope. There's hope. The apostles obviously lacked the understanding and the spiritual power that they were going to need to complete the unfinished work that Jesus had begun. And praise God, Jesus knew that. And so Dr. Luke reminds us of several more things that, that Jesus did to prepare them for this great spiritual work that was ahead of them. And so I want to point us back to verse 3 and look at what it says. Notice it says, During the 40 days after he suffered and died during the 40 days as you can see and as you will see Jesus gave them 40 more precious days of his presence on earth with them before he ascended back to the heavenly father you have to ask yourself the question why 40 days why 40 days the phrase 40 days is mentioned in the bible more than 20 times the Bible is clear that God considers 40 days to be a spiritually significant period of time. This phrase typically designates a period of time that is used to complete an important spiritual challenge. Whenever God wanted to prepare someone to accomplish one of his purposes, he often took 40 days. When we see this phrase used in the Bible, there was always something challenging taking place that led to spiritual growth within the time frame in the context of 40 days think with me can you imagine how Noah's life was transformed with 40 days of rain think about how different Moses was after he spent 40 days on the mountain with God at least two of the 12 spies were spiritually transformed after their 40 days of spying in the promised land. And young David certainly was moved and shaped by Goliath's 40-day challenge. And Elijah was a totally different man spiritually when, when God gave him 40 days of strength through a single meal. And what about Nineveh? They were a completely different city after God gave them 40 days to change. Even Jesus was empowered by 40 days of prayer and fasting in the wilderness. And yes, you can clearly see that his disciples were amazingly transformed by their 40 days with Jesus after his resurrection. I want to point out four things scripture bears out that Jesus did to help prepare them for what they were going to be doing in his absence. The first thing that he did was he appeared to them calming their fears. He appeared to them. There is no way that anyone, even the disciples, would have been enthusiastic about proclaiming his story and facing martyrdom for a dead Jesus. Who would do that? Nobody. 
They needed absolute assurance that Jesus was alive. They needed to know that he was still going to fulfill his messianic promise to bring his kingdom to fruition. So Jesus gave them the very best proof he could give them. And that was he appeared. He appeared to them. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verse 3. Paul writes, I passed on to you what was most important and what had been, so, had been passed on to me that Christ died for our sins just as the scripture said. He was buried and he was raised from the dead on the third day as the scripture said. Note this. He keeps reminding us what scripture says. He was seen by Peter and then by the 12 apostles. And after that, he was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time. You might fool one or two, but you won't fool 500 at one time. Most of whom, he writes, are still alive, though some have died by now. And then he was seen by James and, and later by all the apostles. And last of all, Paul says... I saw him. I saw him too long after the others as though I had been born at the wrong time. So what was the result of the appearance that Jesus made? Well, the apostles became absolutely convinced of the reality of their Lord's physical resurrection. All their doubts left them. Their fears were gone. He is alive. They're not troubled anymore. They saw Jesus walk through solid walls. They, they saw his crucifixion wounds. They saw him eat and drink, and, and they actually heard his voice. They saw him with their own eyes, and they believed, all because he appeared. He also proved to them without a shadow of a doubt that he was indeed alive, giving them hope. Listen, to become so convinced that they, 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 they were so convinced by what they saw and what they heard that they then boldly preached the gospel to the very people who crucified him. You remember the story. They're so afraid after the arrest, they went and they hid for days. Now they're standing boldly and proclaiming the truth that Jesus is alive. Wow. John MacArthur said the transition of the apostles from fearful, cowering skeptics to bold, powerful witnesses is a potent proof of the resurrection. Not only did they appear, or he appear and, and prove that he was alive, but he spoke to them about the kingdom of God, giving them a purpose, helping them to focus on the task ahead. Jesus continued to teach them more truth concerning the, his divine rule in their hearts as followers. And he taught them and assured them that his death and burial and resurrection was not going to hinder the coming of his promised millennial kingdom. I am sure that the disciples had difficulty believing in God's kingdom uh, coming when they saw their king dying on a cross. They thought it was over. But his resurrection changed all of that. And they boldly began to preach that Jesus is alive and his kingdom is coming and one day our Lord will return. Paul wrote this, For God has rescued us from the one who rules in the kingdom of darkness and he has brought us into the kingdom of his dear son. Peter wrote, So dear brothers and sisters, work hard. Work hard to prove that you really are among those God has called and chosen 
do this and you will never stumble and fall. And God will open wide the gates of heaven for you to enter in to the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Wow. That would be a lot that would help them to finish the task. But there's one more thing they needed and one more thing that Jesus gave them. He also promised them the gift of the Holy Spirit to empower them for the unfinished work of his coming kingdom. He promised them the power they would need. I mean, think about this. With What a huge relief to see Jesus with your own eyes. And, and to know that he's indeed alive, to touch his body and, and see him eat and drink and, and, and mingle among the brothers. And then to be able to better understand their ministry it would have been so easy for them at that point to assume, man, we, we've arrived. Job's over. Mission done. It would have been very similar to us buying land and building a beautiful worship center and then seeing that the worship center is completed and beautiful and thinking that we've arrived, we're done. There's nothing more to do. It's finished. Wrong. To prevent that error from happening, the Bible says that Jesus gathered them together, most likely around a meal. You get that? These were Baptists. Anytime anything's important being done, you've got to be around a meal. And he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem. Look at verse 4, Acts chapter 1, verse 4. In one of the meetings as he was eating a meal with them, he told them, Do not leave Jerusalem until the Father sends you what he promised. Remember, Jesus said, I have told you about this before. I mean, they've just seen Jesus alive. They've talked with him. They've ate with him. You can only imagine how fired up they were and ready to go to work to conquer the world. He's alive. He's not dead anymore. Let's go do what God told us to do. So for Jesus to tell him to stop and stay put. It must have been a strange shock. Listen, all the preparation and all the training that Jesus had done with them and the knowledge that they had gained from their experience of walking with Jesus, all of that, listen, is absolutely useless without spirit power. Did you hear me? I don't care how well you train, if you don't have the Holy Spirit empowering you for the task, it's useless. They had trained so well, but power has to accompany truth. Successful ministry requires spiritual might. And that's exactly why Jesus told them to wait for what the Father had promised them. What were they promised? Look at Luke 24, 49, what Jesus said. He said, and now I will send the Holy Spirit just as my Father promised, but stay here in the city until the Holy Spirit comes and fills you with power from heaven. In John 14, 16, Jesus said, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor. Notice this, don't miss this, who will never leave you. Will you circle those two words, never leave He will never leave you. 
He is the Holy Spirit who leads into all truth. The world at large cannot receive him because it isn't looking for him and doesn't recognize him. But you do because he lives with you now. But later he will be in you. He's not going to just be resting on you. He's going to be dwelling in you. But when the Father sends the counselor as my representative and by the counselor Jesus said, I mean the Holy Spirit, he will teach you everything and will remind you of everything I myself have told you. So as you can see, God had promised to send the Holy Spirit to dwell in them. What a promise. And to explain how that was going to happen, I want you to see how Jesus does that. He, notice he uses the analogy of baptism. Look at verse 5. He said, John baptized with water. But in just a few days, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. The Greek word used here, baptizo, means to immerse. And just as a new Christian is immersed in water baptism, Jesus promised that his disciples would be immersed in the Holy Spirit so that they would be empowered to obey the king and to proclaim the good news about the kingdom. Here's what we know as a fact about Holy Spirit baptism. We know that the apostles had to wait until the day of Pentecost to receive the Holy Spirit. If you read more about Scripture, you learn that during those 40 days, the Holy Spirit was not allowed to come. Jesus had to go back to the Father before he could send the Spirit. If you add up the days, it, it appears that it was about 10 days that they waited. And they were given a unique enabling of the Holy Spirit for a specific task. What were they given the ability to do? They were given the ability to speak in languages they didn't go to college to learn. It's like all of a sudden now I can speak German or Hebrew or French. And I've never went to school to study those. They also received the Holy Spirit in an uncommon way. They received it after their salvation. They were already saved. How do I know that? Acts chapter 2 verse 1 says, On the day of Pentecost, all the what? Believers were meeting together in one place. Those who had put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. They're already saved. They just don't have the Spirit yet. Suddenly there was a sound from heaven like the roaring of a mighty windstorm and it filled the house where they were sitting and then what looked like flames or tongues of fire. He's not talking about tongues here. He's talking about the, the Spirit's manifestation as it descended on those disciples. It settled on each of them and everyone present was filled. If you study that word filled there, it's like you taking a pitcher of water and pouring water into a glass until it's filled up to the top, the brim. Content. They are filled with God at that point. They're filled with the Holy Spirit and they began speaking in other languages. And the Holy Spirit gave them, as the Holy Spirit gave them this ability. Here's the beautiful thing. God gave them the ability to communicate the gospel story of Jesus Christ with all the different people who had gathered there in Jerusalem to worship on Pentecost. This was an amazing miracle of proclamation 
For God gave those people who came that spoke all different languages. They were given the opportunity to hear the gospel story about Jesus Christ. And what was the result? It says, I think, 3,000 people got saved. That's pretty amazing, is it not? Now, what else do we know? We know that today all believers are baptized with the Holy Spirit at the very moment of salvation. There's a ton of scriptures, but I'm going to point you to just a few for time's sake. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13, Paul writes, Some of us are Jews and some are Gentiles, some are slaves and some are free, but we have all been baptized into the body by one Spirit. That's the Holy Spirit. And we have all received the same Spirit. Friends, the very moment that you invite Jesus Christ into your heart, the Holy Spirit comes to live as a permanent resident of your soul. Ephesians 4.30. It's not in your notes, but listen. Paul writes, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, whereby you are sealed unto the day of redemption, guaranteeing that you will be saved on the day of redemption. The word guaranteeing there guarantees your salvation because of the presence of the Holy Spirit living in you. That part of God that comes to live in you, that never leaves you. Romans 8, chapter, chapter 8, verse 9. The latter part of that verse reads this way. And remember that those who do not have the Spirit of Christ living in them are what? Not Christians at all. If you're a Christian, you've got the Spirit. If the Spirit comes to live in you, He doesn't leave you. He guarantees your salvation. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 says, Or don't you know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God? You do not belong to yourself, for God bought you with a high price. So you must honor God with your body. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is a one-time event. It is not a special privilege of just a certain few. No believer is encouraged in Scripture to seek the Holy Spirit. It is not your responsibility to prepare for Him by praying, pleading, waiting, or any other means. The, the passive voice of the verb translated be baptized indicates that the baptism done by Jesus with the Holy Spirit is entirely a divine activity of God. God sends the Holy Spirit at His will and not ours. He always comes to a new believer, just like salvation does, through grace alone and not by any human effort. When Paul wrote to Titus, he said he saved us not because of the good things he did, we did, but because of His mercy. He washed away our sins and, and gave us new life through the Holy Spirit. He generously poured out the Spirit upon us because of what Jesus, our Savior, did. He declared us not guilty. Can you say amen to that? He declared us not guilty because of His great kindness. And now, Paul says, we know. We know that we will inherit eternal life. Life with God that never ends. Now, the Greek word that Dr. Luke used for power is the word dunamis. We get the English word dynamite. 
from that word. And what I want you to see is that every true believer has in them the spiritual dynamite. For what? To serve using your spiritual gifts to empower that gift of service. To fellowship as a part of the spiritual body of Christ, the, the family of God. And to witness in the resurrection power of Christ. Christian, you have been empowered by the Holy Spirit. You have everything you need inside of you to do your part in completing the unfinished task of proclaiming the good news around the world to lost people everywhere. You don't need any more power. You got it. It's already here. The Holy Spirit dwells in you. Listen to how Paul prayed for you. He said, I pray that from his glorious unlimited resources, he will give you mighty inner strength through his Holy Spirit. Now glory be to God. By his mighty power at work within us, he is able to accomplish infinitely more than we would ever dare to ask or hope for. May he be given glory in the church and in Christ Jesus forever and ever through endless ages. Amen. Christian, we live in some challenging days. Right? I had a conversation about that with several people before the service started today. I had a conversation about that yesterday. Pretty much every day this week as I've talked to believers, we've talked about the days of challenge that we live in. Friends, I want you to understand something. It doesn't matter how challenging these days are. God has equipped us for the day. And you live at such a time, in such a time for this, to do God's will and to be about God's business. Praise God, he has equipped us to finish the kingdom work that he started doing. He's given us the Holy Spirit. He's promised us resurrection power. What more do we need? I was thinking about this the other day. Y'all have watched the gas prices go up this week, haven't you? It's not over. I'm just telling you. But you just think about this. Why, why do you fill up your car or truck? Do you fill up your car or truck to leave it in the driveway or in the garage? No. You go fill it up, not because the price is going to be higher the next time, but that's what I've been doing. <laughs> no, you fill it up because you plan to go somewhere, right? You got something on your mind that you want to go do. Why did God put his spirit in you to equip you and empower you? Why did he do that? Because he got something he wants you to do. What, a, what does God want you to do? Are you praying for your lost mate? Are you letting God use you as a godly person to help that person come to know Christ? Are you standing in the way? Are you praying for your neighbor? Are you being a good, godly neighbor so they see Christ living in you? How about the waiter at the restaurant that you'll lead in in just a little bit? Are they going to see Christ living in you by the way you tip them? Or talk to them? What are you doing in your church to make a difference? 
Do you do more than just come and sit? How do you serve Christ and serve the body of Christ? Through your giftedness. What has God empowered you to do? Not sit in a garage. He gave you power, dynamite power, to make a difference for the kingdom of God. The question is, are you willing to do it? You know, what you have to do is say, yes, Lord, send me. I was very pleased yesterday when Bill told me we got seven people going to be trained by Franklin Graham's group. Seven. It could have been 70, but praise God, I was thankful for seven. I asked you last week to write the names of lost people at the top of your bulletin and start praying for them. Have you prayed for them? Do you care about their souls? You need to put May 6th, am I right? On your calendar. And you need to be talking to your neighbor. Or your lost family member. You need to get them there. I read a story about Charles Haddon Spurgeon. In the heyday of his preaching there at that big facility that would seat 10,000 people in one setting. He would preach without amplification. That's how thunderous his voice was. There were so many people coming and so many people standing outside and there was such an interest for people to get lost people into that service and it was so hard to do that they started selling tickets into that theater where they could hear the gospel. And so you know what Christians started doing? They started buying tickets and giving them to lost people so they'd have a seat. Why don't you do that? You know what I'm talking about. Get your lost people, friends here. Get them to Franklin Graham's. Time's running out, folks. We got to get busy and get serious for the Lord.